You have questions? We have answers. We're two Southern moms on the backside of raising kids. And we have some things to say. We've lived life, made mistakes, and learned some lessons. Join us for answers to the questions you, you just, just want to ask your mom. mom. And welcome to another Just Ask Your Mom podcast. I'm Bonnie Blaylock. And I'm Renee Sproles. Well, if there's one thing that makes parents twitchy, it's probably the topic of getting your kid to sleep. Don't you think? Not just twitchy. It's a very hot topic. Yes. Like, it, people get very defensive and inflamed about this. I know. But we are talking about it today. And it's no wonder, really, because new parents hear all the talk about babies having their days and nights mixed up and the woes of exhausted parents having to be up for night feedings. But it's not until we actually bring those newborns home do we really get it. Yeah. Okay. I I jokingly say sleep is um, my spiritual gift. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a it's an actual talent that I have, and I'm actually wearing this aura ring now that tracks my sleep and my heart rate and stuff and everything, and it does indeed tell me that I get excellent, amazing sleep every wow. night. Tons of deep sleep, tons of REM sleep. But listen, sleep is important for yeah. kids and adults. There's a reason that it's um, torture to keep people awake, you know, in the military. <laughs> and the sleep struggle is real for new parents. Like I was at my worst self, I think, when my sleep was so interrupted. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Your mental focus is off and your energy is drained and you're still having mm -hmm. to take care of this little human mm -hmm. being. Yeah, it's really hard. And we did an episode on sleep in general. We did. You'll remember referred to I think it was season seven. No, no season two, season two episode, episode seven. seven. Yeah. And what that does to kids in particular and how they're just not learning. They can't learn they can't. when they're tired. They can't behave when they're tired. Um, so we know how important it is. But I think we we believe wrongly, and we're, we're, we are going to toss this to our expert here in just one second. But I think as, as young parents, we would believe, like, I hope I get a good sleeper. As if it's um, it's not an actually innate innate talent. Mm -hmm. It's, it's actually a learned behavior. I think our sleep expert might tell us. So we're, we're going to put your fears at, at ease and take the pressure yep. of like hoping for the best off of you and right. give you, empower you to like take the reins, move into the realm of great sleep. Right. So we have with us today, Mary Vaughn. She's a certified PCI parent coach sleep consultant and potty training coach. Oh, like where were you? You were in, you were in first grade when I needed you, but like, seriously, this would have been great. <laughs> That's the trifecta. Yes. But, and I stumbled upon her, um, on Instagram actually at let's mother together, but you can find her at www.mothertogether.com. So Mary, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. All right. So how in the world did you get into this? Uh, maybe this won't surprise you, but our oldest, I'm a mom of soon to be, by the time this airs, it will be public knowledge that we're expecting our fourth. And so, <laughs> that's my public announcements, but we are, my oldest is seven and we have a six, four, and then we'll be expecting this fall. So our oldest was a terrible sleeper. And as a new mom, the, and I was living very, very far from my family. My husband was in the military. We had moved across the country. I really lacked a support system. I didn't have my mom nearby to come hold the baby for me. Mm -hmm. um, was really, really struggling with sleep. And like you mentioned, like I was at my lowest and I absolutely was suffering from postpartum depression, though it was undiagnosed at the time. Um, and I won't say that sleep is a cure for maternal depression, but it makes an enormous difference. And so at a point in our life where I was lacking resources and lacking support and uh, underemployed as many military spouses were, uh, sleep consulting was just a really great outlet for me to connect with other moms, share something that I had become so passionate about after finally getting some sleep with our son. Uh, it was just this really kind of natural flow forth from kind of my lived experience and a desire to just, yeah, connect. It was something that fulfilled and filled my bucket. It was something that let me, you know, be a little bit more than mom at home with my rapidly, you know, growing family. 
And so, yeah, it's, I love, love, love sleep. I love helping moms and it, it can be just so life-changing. It can. Well, we were parents of little ones in the nineties mm-hmm. and there just was not, no such animal. Yeah. Like we stumbled through trial and error. You might ask, yeah, like you said, extended family members or friends or your circle or whatever, but it was just, you got the babies that you got and you figured it out or you didn't. And eventually, you know, hopefully by the time they were in high school, they were sleeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like, that was just not going to work for me. Like I, I was, I was like, I cannot, I cannot stand the thought of the unpredictability of my child's sleep. Um, that I can never know when I'm going to have some space, a little bit of a break. And so I looked and looked and looked until I found a resource that I thought, Hey, this, I can do, I'm going to work this system. So we, you and I were talking about like, what did we do? Mm -hmm. It was a, it was kind of um, routine. It it was a routine. It was a sleep, eat, wake cycle. And for each of my kids, I did that. And for each of them, they settled into their sleep at different ages. So Emma was probably my first one, six weeks old, sleeping through the night. That's amazing. It was I'm- really great. Now with the growth spurts, sure. she would you know wake up again in the night, but Houston was different. We did the exact same thing, the sleep, eat, wake. Although, you know, the, the eat part, Emma was like 45 minutes of nursing. Houston was like 10, 15 max gulper, gulper, gulper. Yeah. And so <laughs> that the, it looked a little different, but he was six months old by the time he was sleeping through the night, which Tiffany, our neuroscientist that we had on mm-hmm. said, like every baby has the brain development to sleep through the night by about six months. She's like, sometimes yeah. the brains just aren't making all that. Cause remember sleep moves from the front of the brain to the back. Yeah. So I wondered if that was part of it. Yeah. Savannah. I think ours were similar. Savannah was probably six, eight weeks on my first, when she started sleeping through the night pretty regularly. And it was pretty easy to get on that schedule and do that thing. Naps were pretty regular. The naps were regular. Yeah. The second one, God said, yeah, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you thought you were so excellent. Don't you feel like you're feeling like <laughs> such a winner. And then you get <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah. And then that one was a little harder. Like, you know, like Houston, he took probably five mm-hmm. or six months to, to settle into it. Maybe it's a male, female thing. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You guys did really well because I regularly have families who come to me with their 11-month-olds, 13-month-olds who have never even approached sleeping through the night. And we see that the toddlers who come in, right? I have parents who come to me, they're like, we're finally, we're 18 months deep and I thought we would outgrow this and it just isn't coming together. And so honestly, six months is really you guys did really well compared to uh, friends. Yeah. <laughs> and we, cause, we cause we've made mistakes as our tagline Absolutely. says at the beginning, we've made plenty of mistakes. So it's nice to know like, Hey, this, maybe this wasn't one. right. Yeah. yeah. This wasn't one. <laughs> no, we see that all the time too. And even older than 18 months, like into school age yeah. sometimes five, yeah. six years old, you're still, still helping go to sleep at night and all that. And I just, I don't know. That's so disruptive. I think for kids and families in general, but so you take expecting parents, parents with multiple kids, or maybe just that one stubborn toddler. And you do one-on-one consulting and walk them through this strategy that works for each family. So what yeah. does it actually look like? Some, I guess a desperate parent is like, I can't yeah. take it anymore. <laughs> and they call you. And then what happens? So the first thing we do is have a conversation about what their experience has been up to this point and really kind of give them an opportunity to be heard and, and share because it is, it's different for every kid. And that's part of one of really my core values is that every kid is different and every family is different and your goals might look different. And right. For some parents, their goal is to have their kids sleep through the night every night and other parents are just want their kid to give them a decent stretch of sleep. And so whatever those goals are and identifying what parents are hoping to get out of it. Um, and talk a little bit more about their kid's personality and talk about what they've tried before and what they respond to. Um, and then we take that information as well as there's uh, an intake form that parents fill out for me that just has a little bit more information about their family and their kiddo. And then I take all of that information and put it into a plan that is custom for each family. And and that includes, you know, a a unique starting point for a schedule and trying to sort out a method that'll work for them that parents can be consistent with Mm -hmm. and that kids respond to. 
right? It's got to be both. And uh, trying to strike a sweet balance between parents being comfortable and being able to be responsive in the way that they need to and that their kid learns to sleep. Uh, so striking a balance between both. And then we spend anywhere from two weeks to I have families who do retainers with me and just keep me on board indefinitely so that I can troubleshoot all of their sleep problems forever. And so anywhere from two weeks and beyond, we we tweak and we adjust and kind of figure out the schedule that their kid needs because some kids are really high need sleepers and some kids are lower need sleepers. And so parents often come and they're like, oh, like, you know, I read the blogs, I did the thing, I paid for the sleep plan from, you know, name that like boxed sleep program out there and it didn't work for my kid. And it's like, usually it's because your kid needs less sleep than the average kid. And so the schedule that you were handed goes out the window and just doesn't quite work. And so we figure out what works for your kid. And so how can you tell if your child needs less sleep? I thought there was basically, you go to a pediatrician and they're going to tell you, you know, yeah. your child needs 12 hours of sleep a night, 15 hours of sleep. Way more yeah. than you think yeah. for a child. Yeah. But how do you know that they really need less sleep or is it just, oh, they're just, they're just getting not sleeping. Sleep. Yeah. They're just not sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, I love that question. That's And it's so discouraging for parents to go to the pediatrician and be told that your kid should be sleeping 13 or 15 hours a day. And they're like, my kid isn't sleeping anywhere near 15 hours a day. And they feel like they're doing something wrong. And they feel like they are just blowing their kid's wellness because they're not sleeping as much as their pediatrician says that a four-month-old or a six-month-old should sleep. Um in general, so there are times where we can squeak out more sleep from kids who seem to be low sleepers. Um, but what I have parents do is keep track of how much sleep your kid is getting per day. So including naps and including nights for a couple of days to up to about a week. And usually that number is actually really kind of consistent. And you'll see like, you know, sometimes it's nap heavy and sometimes it's night heavy, but it always shakes out to be almost the same number per day and you can pretty reliably run with that and I might be able to increase it a little once we get their sleep really rolling but knowing that number is hugely valuable and I actually don't see other consultants talking about it in the same language this is something I have struck on and found to be incredibly useful is knowing that number that your kid needs and then you can say well if my kid needs 13 hours of sleep I can do 11 at night and two are going to get divided up into their naps and that's what we're going to run with. And so, yeah, it's, I don't want to make it sound like rocket science by any means, but a little bit of data goes yeah. a really long way to helping me figure out what their kid's going to respond to. Well, that to me seems so like, so right. You know, when we're, when you're nursing, they tell you like to weigh your baby just, before you nurse and weigh your baby yeah, after. The same thing. So you know how yeah. much they're drinking and how much they're getting. And you're just kind of getting an, instead of just going on a gut feeling, mm -hmm. you're looking at some actual data. Mm -hmm. And I did notice between my two that um, my son from infancy needed two hours a day less than my daughter, two hours a day less. And he would go to sleep much more slowly. He would, we put him down awake. That was our rhythm. I, we snuggled after. So we put him down awake. Let's so say they learned to go to sleep on their own. And which I just considered a life skill based on the book I read. And then we snuggle after we do our rocking and snuggly, snuggly 30 minutes after. And so I would peek at him and he'd be in a dark room at night, not crying, awake, looking at the ceiling, looking at the mobile, <laughs> you know, and even as a teenager, he did the same thing. He yeah. would be dead an hour, hour and a half, two hours processing. Wow. I actually found, yeah, I recently finally found an article from I think it was in pediatrics that validated what I've been, I've been telling people this for years and didn't actually have hard research to back it up. I just had a lot of experience in a lot of babies, but the amount of sleep you need behaves like a trait in kids. And so your low sleep needs is like the same thing as your kid has brown hair and brown eyes and they are low or high sleep needs. And it is consistent from infancy through childhood and probably, probably into adulthood. It wasn't in that particular piece of research, but yeah. knowing that and being able to explain that to parents and say like, 
sometimes it's tough to burst their bubble when they come to me with a four month old who is a low, like this is, this is your lot in life. And your kid is always going to probably need less than their peers. And I'm sorry, you drew the short straw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Welcome to dying to yourself and yet <laughs> <Yeah>. another way. <laughs> we okay. cannot change this. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, but expectation is huge psychologically. Yeah. So if you're, so, yeah, like you said, you, you go to the pediatrician and you're thinking, mm -hmm. oh, I'm not hitting this 14 mm -hmm. hours or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then where does that fall? Well, it's not the kid's fault because he's just a kid. So it must be me. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. Maybe. So you lower your expectation. You lower your expectation and you go for good sleep for the hours yeah. that child does need. Yes. And you yeah. figure out how to make it predictable and you try to figure out how to maximize it. And and there's some, you have some influence over, you know, how long the night is versus naps, right? If you know you're working with 12 or 13 hours total, you can, you can kind of decide a little, you know, you have a little bit of control to say like, let's do 10 hours or let's do 11 hours overnight and the remainder can go to the day. And like some kids are a little bit more sensitive to that, but once you know what you're working with, then you can make it work for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Why would you say that there seems to be such polarization around kids and sleep? And if you read comments online on any given sleep blog or whatever, that's your first mistake. Yeah. Why read the never comments? read comments? Don't read comments. <laughs> you guys are coming in really hot. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming in hot. You're right. Already somebody vilifying those who go with crying it out or those who all sleep in one big bed. And in the end, are they all going to end up in the same place? Or do you think that there are some techniques that prove better than others? Oh, okay. That's a good question. So regarding the polarization, it is wild out there. It is so hard to be a mom because yeah. this is, sleep is essential and there's going to be you know, some people who are such strong advocates for bed sharing and as a sleep professional, I am required to advocate strictly for safe sleep. I can't, like, I cannot mm. tell you to bed share. Um, but so there's just these like such strong feelings and it is so, it, it, this is one of those topics that I feel like is so difficult to parent through because somebody is going to have an opinion about, oh, yeah. about it. And it might be your family member, or it might be a stranger online, or it might be, right? It might be grandma. It might be your sister. It might be your husband who disagrees with how you want to. Yeah, Mary. Like, well, how many husbands love the bed share idea? Like, I really have met, not met many who love the bed share idea. <laughs> no. And let's say why. Why did they not love it? Oh, you know. So... <laughs> You guys, want, you guys want me to bring it. So I will, I will argue for every family that if you have no other better reason to get your kids sleeping in your own space, it's so that you could prioritize your marriage. You, you and your spouse should be sharing a bed and should be sharing a room. And you can room share with your child. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends room sharing for up to the first year. But bed sharing is a totally different conversation. And you and your spouse really deserve that time together and the closeness that that is meant to be. And I just, yeah, can't say it loudly enough. That <laughs> I believe so. there are a million reasons to get your kids sleeping well and sleeping independently, but that is, ooh, that's way high on the list. And it's not talked about people are not, you know, people are talking about whether it's right. Like whether crying is okay or not. People are talking about whether you need to wake them every couple hours to feed and people are talking about, bonding and attachment parenting, but it's like your marriage comes first. Yeah. All your kids want is for you two to be okay. I think that's, you just hit on it. Your <laughs> marriage comes first. And I think most, most in today's culture, the baby arrives and that shifts immediately. The center of the family and so whatever it takes for that, that mom child relationship or dad child relationship, that's going to, that's going to be first. Right. Yeah. And it's a hot, I feel like this is a hot take in today. Yep. yep. And I, like, I don't, I don't yep. have a chance to talk about this particular topic and maybe I should bring this online more often because I, I do, I really strongly agree that your kids need a strong marriage. They need their parents to be happy. They need to see their parents 
well rested and connected and they need that more than they need to sleep in your bed. And, and ironically, it's that security and that um, feeling of seeing mom and dad be okay and all of those things that contribute to the better sleep. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we've seen it a lot in our parenting classes oh. that once mom and dad are get, you know, sitting down on the couch in the afternoons and looking each other in the eye for five to 15 minutes and operating, coordinating, cooperating. And yeah, and then the child starts having this sense of security. And sometimes those sleep issues kind of slowly disappear. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. listen, we say on this podcast all the time. And so I feel like that this is a moment to say it again, that the Bible is a picture of the way the world works. It's not a book full of rules. It's a, it's a worldview of like, Hey, here's how it works. And when the apostle Paul says, you are not allowed to stop having sex with each other, except for a time of prayer and fasting. He's practical because I can tell you that my friends who have shared with me who are on the verge of divorce or who are divorced, that was the beginning symptom. The beginning symptom was we stopped being intimate with one another. And when we allowed that to continue, we can mark that as the beginning of the end. Right. And whether it's because your kid is in your, is sharing your sleep space or because they're sleeping unpredictably and you're too tired to be present at the end of the day and you and it's under like I'm not right yeah. we have oh, yeah. lived through those phases where you don't have anything left to give to your spouse. Like we have we have all lived through that. But it is such a game changer to have your kids sleeping consistently so that you can begin to work on that again and to find the energy for yourself and for your family and for and for your spouse. And I and I see it where parents come to me and they say, well, I, I don't want my child to cry at all. And it's like, well, that's like, we can work with that, but is it better or worse for your child to see you just drained and tired and, you know, crying and you are emotionally dysregulated? Like, is that better or worse for your family on the whole mm-hmm. than a couple of days of us figuring out how to get your kid to sleep better? Or like a long-term stretch of your kid seeing a parent who can't be joyful and can't be present and can't be the mom that you want to be. Do you think it's an either or? I guess this polarization thing. I feel like I feel like it's presented as this um, black or white. You can either have a loved and well-adjusted child, or you can have one who sleeps great but who's probably somehow emotionally scarred. That's a false dichotomy. That is. So, logical fallacy. I mean, that's what that's what you would come, that's what come away presented with online. And that is what they they, right? The like whatever they out there. Mm-hmm. But but you're right. And no, right. There are, and I will say this, you can sleep train and you can teach a child to sleep with at certain ages with truly zero tears especially like teeny tiny ones. And once you get into the toddler years, you can be much, much more responsive and much more involved and really help them kind of co-regulate those emotions that come with it. In between, there's usually some crying, but there's a wide spectrum of responsiveness. Mm. You don't have to shut the door and walk away. Yeah. Not all. And I, there's no reason to pay a consultant money to tell you to just let your kid cry it out. Yeah. So, the value is in finding a way to be responsive and that your child responds. Um, no, it is. Yeah. That the, uh, right. Likening it to kids who are truly abandoned and neglected and who stop crying because they know no one's going to come for them is referring to like Romanian orphans. It's yeah. not referring to a child who is loved all day long and is in a safe sleep space with parents nearby, like totally different things. And I'm so glad that you said that out loud. We just, we're pain avoiders in the U.S. But you, it's worth knowing too that they sometimes, that they is a- need sh- to. They need yeah. to. It's a stress reliever. It's the only way they communicate. And it doesn't necessarily always mean- Heart-wrenching sadness and great distress. Right, right. Right. And there's a big difference between the sounds of children's cries. And I talk and I tell parents all the time to trust their gut about the sound of their kids' cries. And there's a big difference between the cries of pain or discomfort and cries of being kind of indignant that they're not being (laughs) to sleep. 
Yes. Those are different sounds. And, and I don't want parents to not trust that, right? Like if you need to respond to your child, you absolutely should. And I stand by that a million percent and, and we can figure it out the next night if we have to, but it's, yeah, trust it, trusting your gut, but yeah, your kid is, there are kids who are fully sleep trained and will still cry for 30 seconds or a minute or two every night, just because it is kind of a decompression. Yeah. And you put them down and they will let out a couple of hollers and that's just part of their falling asleep. And it's, and parents are like, is that ever going to stop? And, yeah. I don't know. I've mm-hmm. been nights as an adult where I'm yeah. A good cry is what I needed to go to bed. I, yeah. You know? Yeah. Or like I wanted to, and I couldn't, it's like, yeah. Oh, if I could just cry, I would feel better. Right. <laughs> But knowing the different cries, no one taught me that. Yeah. And my sleep training book didn't teach me that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for some of us, I would call myself like, I didn't feel like I was very intuitive mother. So if you told me to trust my gut, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't have that. And, and knowing like you can, you can read about um, the different sounds of the cries and there's little videos where you can hear, okay, here's a distressed cry. Here's a, I'm hungry. Here's I'm, I'm mad at you. That was help. Like my, um, my daughter-in-law, she's amazing. I love her so much. When my daughter got pregnant, she got online and did this research of all the different cries just to be a good aunt. (laughs) And she showed me that. And I thought, wow, I wish I'd had that. Yeah. Um, because that would have helped me. Cause I, I think many moms are more like what you're describing, Mary, where they do have the gut and they're going, "Mm, something's off. Yeah. But there are some of us out there who feel like, "Mm, We've not, this is totally I, new. This is totally new. I didn't love babysitting. I didn't do a ton of it. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. I think there's some moms who are more sensitive to it than others. And and so it's harder, even when maybe it's not really a crisis cry. It's I have parents who have a much harder time tolerating even what I like is really just a an angry kind of frustrated cry, Mm -hmm. but that's, that's okay. And that's part of, that's part of the value is having somebody to talk to through that Mm -hmm. and to help you discern what your, what your kid is going through and figuring out what's, what's really going on and whether you should proceed with sleep training or whether you should take a break and having somebody to navigate. It would be a great baby gift. Oh, totally. This would be the best. Yes. You would win this and a maid. You would win the shower contest. Oh, absolutely. That would be I have gift cards on my website. Okay. Well, link to your website with the gift cards. Honestly, if I didn't think they'd be offended beforehand, it's all theory. So they probably wouldn't be offended. Right. right? right. So you do it beforehand at the baby shower. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. That's so good. So I'm curious, have you ever had anybody send you a video or an audio of is this cry okay or is this not? I have a couple of times, not very, not very frequently. Most parents are gonna do what they're gonna do, whether I tell them to. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say most parents know, unlike Renee. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, yeah, so I have occasionally, yes, <laughs> get videos of people's monitors. Hard to hear. It's hard to figure it out. You gotta hear all the cries, right? Yeah. Like, to know. Yeah. Yeah. I have never done. I have had people inquire about doing in person consultations and going and being with them for the first couple of nights, but I haven't actually done it. So, so that would be a totally different, I know there are consultants who do it, who, um, you know, most major cities, you can find one who will come to your place and help you get through that first night or two. Girl, if I was doing that with somebody, I would charge the big bucks. <laughs> That's why I haven't actually had someone pull the trigger. Cause I'm not staying up for any, I, I prioritize my own sleep way too much to, you would really have to pay me the big bucks to go hang out of your find another question because I do know people who have, I guess what you would call them night nurses, I guess. Well, we have, yeah, friends, yeah. We have friends who do this for a living. They get up with the babies at night. They So are the bring nurses them. teaching them the sleep techniques at all? Or are they just waking? I think it depends. I've seen so, and I think you have to shop. If you're looking at night nurses or postpartum doulas, you can find some who are also certified as sleep consultants and will work on sleep with your kid. But there are plenty who are there just to hold your kid and feed them at night so that you get your sleep and they, and they aren't doing that added layer for you, but they exist. And I have, I have a good friend in the business who does both. And she says she's kind of a controversial, but hot commodity because she does both, right? Like 
you hire a postpartum doula and you may or may not be the type of person who also wants sleep consulting. And so she's right. Like she fits into both of these worlds. It's interesting. There's so much stuff out there, but you could find somebody yeah. if you were really desperate and you needed that extra help. You, yeah. you could find that if you needed your you yeah. really need person that needs your sleep as an adult. Yeah. That's interesting to me. Uh, All right. So tell us how you mentioned at the beginning, Renee, how is toddler sleep different from infant sleep? Toddler sleep is 95% of the time a behavioral issue and no longer, right, your routines and nailing the perfect schedule and trying to kind of sleep science the game. It's really, it tends to become a behavioral thing where you have taught your child that the way that they sleep is either by rocking or nursing or climbing into their bed and snuggling them until they fall asleep and throughout the night or, or that they can climb into your bed every night at midnight. Um, right at that point, it's alert behavior. And so it's really about coaching the parent and, and helping build their confidence in changing the routines that they have created. So, so what yeah, age, what cutoff age are you, do you, it, it varies a little bit child by child. And I have to ask parents, you know, about how communicative are they? What is their receptive communication? Mm -hmm. But approaching to 20 months, 22 to even sometimes 18 months, depending on the kid. But that like 18 month window can be so tricky because they're not a baby, but they are not a big kid yet. That's a that's a tricky age. And I almost sometimes tell people, it's like, if you can just get through another month or two, you're going to have a very different consultation with me. And wow. we will be able to approach this from a much more like a behavioral angle. Whereas with a 17 month old, they are vocal, they are loud, they have big opinions and it's hard to get through it with at that age. But isn't it earlier, the better? Only if you're talking about like really early after maybe four, five, six months, it's kind of a wash after there's going to, there will be tears after that point. And so parents kind of lump that in together where it's like, this is going to be harder, right? At four and five months, you can be so responsive and you can be right there and support your kid every second. And, and that's what parents are looking for at that age. And then once you get into the second half of their first year and into, you know, that first, you know, up to 18 months is where it's kind of like, oof, your kid's probably going to cry. It's how responsive do you want to be in this process? Like, do you oh, want to sit and hold their hand? It's not impossible. It's just, there's going to no, be, going to be no, more no, no. But Usually if they've made it through 18 months and like they've survived that far, sometimes they, those are the parents who are like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't want to do this. I don't want to be here. And so I tell them, if you want to wait two more months and call me back, we will we'll be able to approach this very differently. And we can even talk about a toddler bed. We can talk about just making that transition altogether and hmm. and making all of this leaps and bounds while you have the support. Um, yeah, it's more of a path of least resistance kind of yes. a thing at that point. Yeah. Parents who have made it that far tend to be willing to wait if I promise them it'll be easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sure, I would. So that's like many, yeah. many things in the first five years of life yeah. is the sooner is better than later. You just you're you're it's such a foundational window of mm -hmm. time. Yes. So that's interesting. Okay, well, well, let's talk about naps because I again I just I was so new and I I just was like, okay, every child needs X amount of naps because that's what the book says. Yeah. And it worked for you. So yeah, it was great. Listen, we went from two two really great naps, maybe three in the very beginning, but um, two really good sized naps to one ginormous nap, mm -hmm. which was fabulous, to room time. They just had quiet time in their rooms until they were junior high because we homeschooled. So it was just a break during the day. Um, yeah, ours we had. I naps were not, not negotiable. Yeah. Like you didn't have to sleep necessarily. Mm -hmm. Although I hope that you do, <laughs> but right. we're going to have those times because everybody's behavior, including my I own. Was better. Love that you guys did that. It is something I, I coach parents to do it when their kid drops their nap. I coach them to, you know, institute a quiet time and 
I think that it's it's hard and I'm guilty too, right? I, when our youngest dropped his nap, it became let's snuggle and watch a show for an hour and mm-hmm. rather than, hey, go flip through books, which is what he should be doing. And that's the, right, that's the better, if you could see my air quotes, that would be mm-hmm. the better mom thing to do. Uh, but I love that you guys, and my mom did too. I had, I had quiet time until I was in kindergarten and and it's so good for your kid and it's and it's essential for you, right? Your kid drops their nap and you lose that middle of the day break. But it's kind of, I have parents who are like, oh, it's like, he's not going to stay in his room. He's not going to do it. And that's exactly, it's the behavioral thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's not staying in his room because he doesn't if have you want it to happen. <laughs> you, you can't, you are the parent. You can make this happen. We would be the best of friends, Mary. I know. We lived in the same town. Yeah. I just, I'm tracking with you so much. 100%. It's just not, and I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to lose, lose followers for this, but I just, I feel like it's right. Parents are afraid to be the parent in a lot of ways today and don't want their kid to be upset about anything, sleep included. But I also, right, I do coaching for moms and it's a lot of like, you're the, you're the parent. Yeah, you're you're you can do it. You can take the blows. You know, I'm, that's what I felt like. If I get it wrong, it's on me. It's yeah. hard. We're gonna, but but don't. I didn't think it was fair to put it on my three year old to make that choice. Right. There's gamblers. Like I needed consistency. The and and if if she thought she could get away with it because I was inconsistent, well, that's my fault. Uh, she yeah. could talk. Then she would. She'd sniff out weakness in a heartbeat. <laughs> right. Right. And it is work to create that consistency and it is work to, you know, put her back in quiet time for the first couple of weeks. And it is hard to establish that routine, but the long-term payoff is so worth it. Oh my gosh. so worth it. Short-term pain. Long-term pain. It's really hard. And I, I, it takes, it takes a lot of, right, finding the parents language, like speaking, finding the way to communicate about it, to build their confidence that it's, it's okay to make the decisions and, and they that need your kids, those decisions. they need you to, that's they right. Really need right. You to do that. They don't need to love your decisions. On the other right. side of this, this short-term pain, this short-term kind of putting them back on the blanket for blanket time, and then keep putting them back in the room for room time. The other side of this is peace and harmony. And everyone at their best. Security. Security. Yeah. Yes. Boundaries make kids feel secure. Mm -hmm. And that's all day and nighttime. And one of the things, one of the one of the kind of divisive things that people throw out there about sleep and parenting is that people who sleep train are don't want to parent at night and that they are, you know, choosing not to be parents after 7 p.m. and that they ignore their kids needs overnight and they don't want to be right and they're just ignoring and unresponsive and and i hate that because it is right if your kid is sleeping well 99 percent of the time if they do wake up and they cry you know something's wrong Mm. and you know you actually have more information than if you have an inconsistent sleeper where you're like, oh my gosh, are they teething? Are they hungry? Like what is going on? But if your kid is typically going to sleep through the night and then you hear from them at an odd hour, you know, they're sick or you know that something is going on for them and it makes you a more informed parent. Yeah. And more responsive at those times too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know how to respond. You've been responsive 12 hours of their waking day. Mm-hmm. So the, I don't know. Parental responsiveness is not a light switch that goes on in the day and turns off at night. Mm-hmm. It, I, I think that's a ludicrous I know. position to hold. I know. I, I've not actually heard it stated that way, but I was like, what? Yeah. It doesn't actually work that way in real life, but okay. <laughs> um, okay. So how do you know when you're transitioning that nap time? I, I hear this a lot. They're doing pretty good with the two naps a day. How do you know when they're ready to drop one? They're just not sleeping too well. Yeah. The, the long and short of it is that they will stop sleeping at a time when they should be asleep. And that will either be fighting one or both naps. It might be shorter naps. It might be fighting bedtime. It might be waking super early. It might be waking in the middle of the night for a long stretch. But it, And it could present as any of those things. And I tell people not to make any changes right away. Like, don't, don't go dropping a nap after the first night of it. 
But if you see a pattern of your kid being wakeful at a time where they otherwise ought to be sleeping, Mm. then it's usually time to reassess their schedule. And I don't know about you, Bonnie, even we didn't talk about this, but I know when when we went from two naps to one, the one nap got longer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was almost the sum of the two, maybe not quite. And some days more. Yeah. Yes. Just depending on if they were growing or, or whatnot. But yeah, and it gave me really good information. I, I, when there's a behavior issue going on, you know, you do the triage questions. Are they hungry? How have they slept? Are, are dad and I good? What changes or disruptions have been in their life? And, and it's just really good information. If you're not, if you have an erratic sleeper, unpredictable, how would you know? Like, how, yeah. how would you know? It's like a, it's like a vital sign for your, uh, for yeah, your kids in some ways. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Love that. Okay. So that's daytime sleep. So what about nighttime? I thought, you know, <laughs> you think, okay, if you don't have a medical circumstance going on or something, your kids have been literally busy, like busy. Have you ever tracked actual movements, physical movements of a baby or a toddler? They're so busy all day long. They got to be tired. Well, why will they not go to sleep? It can be a lot of things. It's, but typically it comes down to either an inappropriate schedule or they don't know how to. And that those are the two pieces that come together for all of my consultations. And those are the two biggest questions I have are, how is your kid falling asleep at night or for naps? How, how are you getting them to sleep? And then I take a really close look at their schedule. And that is, mm-hmm. and they both have to go together. And I will tell people, while I don't think that crying is necessarily a bad thing, I don't think that we can always avoid it. I don't want to let a kid cry if we haven't done everything we can to set them up for success. And if you have just a wild kind of off the wall schedule and your kid is napping, you know, all over the place, it's really hard. And so the first thing I do is tell people, okay, like, here's a schedule we're going to start with. Try to stick to this, even if you have to hold them for that first day so that their night is set up for success. And so that we can start sleep training with bedtime when you have melatonin and darkness and a whole day of activity working in your favor, there's a lot of things working for you at night. So I tell people to start with night. So even if you have to, even if you have to rock them during the day for that first day, I want you to make sure that they're set up for success so that the parent can have a lot, can have more peace about it and feel like they've done everything in their power to make sure that this is going to work. And that's one of those pieces that I can say, okay, like you've done everything they are not sick. They are not hungry. They are safe. They are not hot. They are not cold. They are, they are all of the things and we have done it and now it's okay. And you can feel, you can feel okay about your decision. Yeah. So do you see parents, cause we talk about um, screens as adults, how that it disrupts a blue light disrupts our sure. body's cues for sleep and yeah. teenagers for sure. We're like, get the phones out of the room, get the computers out of the room, out, out, out for so many reasons, not just sleep for safety and online stuff and all that. Are you, do you see parents of toddlers using screens? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh, occasionally, mm-hmm. occasionally, I don't want to say that it's constant, but in an ideal world, you would be screen free for about two hours before bedtime. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just the parents. I do have parents occasionally who say like, we wind down in my child's bed by watching videos together. Yeah. And obviously that's got to change. And that's a hard one, right? They're like, that's how they fall asleep. Like we watch, we watch cars on the, on my phone every night at bedtime. That's a pretty easy one to explain to them, right? Like you are blocking their melatonin production. You are stunting that and they're not. And then, and then, I mean, I can get on a soapbox about melatonin supplements on another day, but if you want your kid to sleep, that's one important one. And it's harder to get people to shut it down hours in advance. Mm-hmm. Though that would be preferable and ideal. And um, for teeny tiny ones, babies before their first I don't know, until they hit about three or four months, don't even produce their own melatonin. And so it's crucial for mom, if you're nursing, that you shut down your screens leading into bedtime so that you produce melatonin so that your child gets it. Oh, I love that. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. And so then once they start to do it, it becomes all the more like dim the lights in the evening, let's darken the house so that your child's natural melatonin will ramp up. 
but yeah, so that doesn't kick in until three or four months. And then after that, you know, most parents are pretty good about screens for the first year, but then you hit these two year olds and they're watching screens and giving them a melatonin gummy. Oh, like, that's yeah. Have we, like, looked at this, like, have we like let's take a let's zoom out and look at what's going on in the house and yeah, and how can we fix this long term? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's so interesting too. You know, kids, kids know <laughs> they know expectations and how to meet them. I used to for about a year when my daughter was first born. I guess. I can't believe you did this. I can't either. I, as you, I know what you're about to say. I cannot believe you did this. Um, yeah, it was a first time mom with a, and I thought, what the heck? I'm home all the time. I, I was keeping another friend's child for a couple afternoons a week, and um, they grew up together through toddlerhood for a couple years. And my daughter went down for a nap, you know, at a certain time, and I'm like, okay, well, this child will too, because that's how we operate. And she did. She went down for a nap like it was no big deal. I put her in the playpen. And the parents would come to pick her up, usually mid nap or right towards the end of it. And they, every time they were shocked, how did you get her to go to sleep in the afternoon? Like, she doesn't do that at our house. And I said, what does she do? And she, oh, she just like runs and plays or whatever. And then when she gets so exhausted that she drops, she'll just drop on the couch or she'll lay asleep on the floor. Cause she's so, that's when she sleeps, if she does. And I'm like, oh, well we just lay down it, you know? right after lunch and we yeah. take a nap. and the child had no zero, never cried, no problem with it whatsoever. I just thought it was so interesting. Like she knows what happens at our house and she knows right. what happens at her house. That happens with daycare families for me. They're like, my kid naps at daycare, like a dream, but they won't do it at home. Because they can sniff out weakness. <laughs> thousands of children. And yeah, they, they don't have to at home. Yeah, they're brilliant. So mm -hmm. they can do it and you've seen them, right? You know, they're capable. So, so let's make that happen. Yep. Yep. So there's lots of families who just kind of give in and they're going to lie down with their kids until they fall asleep. And then it's like, you're diffusing a bomb stealthily trying to get out of the room without waking them up. Right. Um, but we all go through these cycles at night where we're sleeping a little bit lighter and then we go into deep sleep. So there is a point at night, it's natural for your child to just wake up. Or at least go into a lighter sleep where they might even make a sound or something. Um, so what should parents do? Is that the cue? Oh, it's time for them to wake up now. <laughs> or do they have to go in at that point? Or is it just give them a second? Let's see if they'll go back. I always tell parents of, at every age to wait at least five minutes, no matter what you do before you go in, especially if they are not screaming and you know, you're alarmed by it, always wait at least five minutes because some kids are noisy between sleep cycles. Yeah, you you absolutely, you knew exactly what you were asking. That's, wait a minute, because so many kids will just go back to sleep. But I was, I was guilty of that too, right? As a first time mom, I thought my job was to keep the crying to the absolute minimum. And that if he cried, I had to stop it immediately. Yeah. And and that was my job, right? Like he made a sound, I have to stop. It. Like he should, he should be quiet all the time, and he should be happy. And uh, that was a big adjustment for me. That's and what babies work, yeah. That, but that's I yeah. don't know where that, where I got that expectation. I, I, I don't know where we, because it's because we're anti-pain, Mary. Yes. Like our, the U.S., we do not find like we do not take the long-term view on in so many areas. And so yeah. for me, even with my granddaughter, when I say it's time to pick up the toys and she bursts into tears and is putting that, picking that toy up and is dropping it in the toy box. That is a win for right. me like that. She's expressing her displeasure and she's doing what I asked. And I know down the road, eventually she'll learn to do it with a happy heart. Like yeah. that's just step one of learning you know, submission, which we also hate in this country. You know, when everyone hates that word as if submission is this terrible thing, but when you submit to one another, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I think that, um, yes, we're comfortable with the baby crying, maybe because we don't know how babies actually express themselves. But also I think we are uncomfortable with the response in ourselves. Oh yeah. Um, because my baby's crying. That means, what does that say about me? And it has 
most of the time, very little at all to do with you, but we take our parenting so personally um, that it's such a reflection of us and our three month old is our report card. And if they're not, you know, all of that stuff is so, gosh, put so much so pressure true. and stress yeah. on, on parents and that just shouldn't be there. It just right. shouldn't. It is. And I am still learning that and taking that more to heart, right? We do, we do so many things as parents to shape our children, but even, I mean, as infants in their sleep and crying, it's, so little of it is really about us. <laughs> yes, very little. I, one one um, distinction I wish I had made as a young mom, so I'll throw it out there for all the young moms who are listening, is the difference between goals and desires. Neil Anderson, mm. Christian psychologist, and he makes this very helpful distinction that the only the only thing I have control of is me. I don't even have control of my husband. My, if my goal is to have a wonderful marriage, well, that's half out of my control. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to put me into stress mode, into fight or flight mode, into some sort of level of anxiety. Um, I can have a desire to have a wonderful marriage, but the goal must be for me to be the best wife I can be because that's the only thing I can cooperate with fully. So as parents, like I honestly, I think I've parented two thirds of my two thirds of the time with my children for the goal being for them to be a particular kind of person. Yeah. And in the end, it, that has to be a desire. Like the goal must be for right. me to be a particular kind of mom who would set them up for success. And so if we can separate like, Hey, the desire is for my child to sleep, but the goal is for me to be the best steward of these little people as I can. And the outcome is open-ended. The outcome is and now you've, yeah, the, the outcome of your child is open-ended, but the outcome of yourself is sure. You have really tons of control over. Yeah. Right. So you hang everything on that outcome. Oh, boy, the boy. And the self-flagellation yeah. and, and, and all the nasty comments in the comment section, because now you've taken it all on you. It's, it's my fault. Yeah. It's my fault. That's I'm right. a terrible person because my child doesn't do X, Y, and Z. And let me tell you, moms, there's a whole lot worse things than them not sleeping through the night. <laughs> yep. It's true. <laughs> so it's true. separate the goal and the desire when you're talking about, about any, any topic that we talk about on here. Oh, yes. No, I love that. All right. So let's talk about toddlers again. Toddlers are notorious for change. On Monday, they love bananas. And by Wednesday, yeah. how dare you offer them the most disgusting fruit on the face <laughs> of the earth. Yeah. So what's the best practice when your toddler is say teething or going through a growth spurt or spent three days at grandma's and had grape juice and donuts every day for breakfast and, or you're on vacation or, and sleeping in a strange room or they're sick, you know, there's best practices and then there's life. Right. Right. What do you and do? I, I try very, very hard to coach parents that I work with around sleep to be, to kind of follow an 80, 20 rule as to the best of their ability, where 80% of the time, if you can be consistent, follow the same routine, your child sleeps in their same sleep space, and you can provide them that consistency, then that's ideal. But I also really do want parents to like live their life and your child is going to get sick and they're going to go through changes and you're going to go on vacation and you should go on vacation. I have parents who don't travel because they're too worried about sleep. And, oh, and, and honestly, I was there too. And so having kind of gone through this point where I was obsessed with sleep to a point where I would sacrifice anything to make sure that my kid was sleeping. I really want parents to have a balanced perspective on it. And so, yeah, of course the best practice is routine. And for, for little ones, I love a visual routine that they can see and conceptualize and even mark off maybe if they can follow along that way. Um, yeah, providing that for them is the ideal and schedule is ideal. That's great. But sometimes you let go of control and but you can always get back on track on the other side. And control, control. I I can talk about that till I'm blue in the face because that was my I know that my my personal sleep obsession came out of my husband was deploying. I had a nine month old and I was pregnant and I was in control of very little yeah. in my life at the moment and, and my child's sleep. And so it was not a healthy thing, like, but that was not a healthy response. That was not my peak parenting. <laughs> but 
it was probably better for my kid that he got great sleep. And it was great for me because I was pregnant. I got great, right? There were a lot of positives that came out of it. But I, looking back, I can see like, that wasn't, that was not a super healthy thing. You probably should have talked to a therapist. But, yeah. and it, but it was short-lived. Yeah. And you yeah. recognize it and you know. So even that yeah. is okay. Right. But letting your kid go to your grand their grandparents' house and eat the donuts and be okay with that and know that like a couple of days of sweets and off schedule and maybe grandma doesn't listen to your bedtime preferences and letting go of that is also really healthy. And so I want that for parents to, to see the big picture that even if you are returned a child who comes off of a sickness or comes off of a trip or comes off of all of the sugar, you might have a bad night or two or three, but there's always hope on the other side. It can always be salvaged and it is not the end of the world. And that's very hard for some parents, myself included, sometimes to see and zoom out far enough to realize that this is not the end of the world and it's going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. The zoom out is such a great analogy because we sit there right on the minutiae every day. It's really hard to do that, but it is such a great perspective. Very helpful. Yeah. I mean, I realized I just started paying attention and I I would, cause I would get all up, you know, up in arms that I came back, you know, sugary and tired and it took them a day. Yeah. It was one day, you know, and I know every kid's different, but I, for me, I was like, I can live with that. You know, I can, and it's so precious. They have such precious memories um, of being with them. Like, of course it's worth the one day. Now, you know, now on this side of it, you can look back and go, of course it's worth it. Right. Same with my husband, quite frankly. I used to get real up in arms, like meat and dessert is not a complete meal. You know, (laughs) like when you have our children, meat and dessert, (laughs) not dinner. And, and it really, at one, some point God spoke to my heart and was like, Renee, you feed them 95% of the time. Let him feed them meat and dessert. It's fine. Right. It's, but it is hard. It is so hard. It's <laughs> yeah, it's just part of mother. Yeah, and the pigtails being crooked and all it's that. Okay. Yeah, why did I care about that? <laughs> it just sounds ridiculous. It's saying it out loud. I have all the boys, and so I have no idea <laughs> what it's like to have like well-groomed children. I don't even know what that means. Oh, this has been yeah. extremely helpful. I think that's good conversation. Just so many things. It, it was so interesting with our first sleep episode, how, um, and we had a pediatrician on some months later who, after our interview ended, had some very strong opinions yeah. about sleep training, very in line with what you've said. Okay. okay. And she, um, she, we were like, we got to do an episode yeah. on this because there's so much guilt and shame mm-hmm. tied to this issue. And it need not be that way. No. Right. I find pediatricians get dragged through the mud by parents online for recommending sleep training. They, and, and unfortunately, a lot of pediatricians can't give a whole lot of information about it and can't tell parents more than to just let them cry it out. So I think that that is one of the problems. And you, and I, I am, involved enough to recognize that like pediatricians have much bigger things to focus on for your child than how they fall asleep. And they will recommend that you sleep train, but they aren't, that's not their full-time job. So and they really have five or 10 minutes with you right, in a room. Exactly. What can and they so tell you? Parents are still hard on pediatricians for just kind of blanket recommending that you sleep train. And I think that's, I think that's the real issue is that that's just not their full-time job, but parents are it is so important to the parent and it is so small to the, to the doctor in the room where it's just this kind of mismatch where parents are desperate and it is for, front of their mind and they're looking for answers and, and pediatricians don't always have a great, well-formed explanation for how to get there. Our, um, one of our pediatrician friends just texts our episodes. Yeah. To, to his clients. Yeah. Like for food issues, we've got a food series or right? yeah, so he's going to add this I, in. Yeah, you'll be part of her, his practice. I hope. I so, sure hope so I would love to, you know, make, he can vet me if he needs to. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, it sounds like, it's right just, I think that's so wise because not because it's us, but because 
it, he knows like, I don't have 45 minutes yeah. to give you this, but here's a good, here's a trusted resource. I'm, I've known these women a long time. Right. We've been friends our whole lives. Um, I would, tr I would trust my kid. I trust my child with them. So yeah. here you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm once again, I'm just gonna plug this again, mothertogether.com. This is Mary's website. You can go there and get her um, consultation one-on-one -on -one if you want. Plus she's got a great blog and all these resources on Instagram that are just like little nuggets of information like you've heard here today. And I just want, thanks again so much yeah. for sharing your information and time with us you today. are so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. This, this awesome. was fun. This was a great hour. <laughs> Okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, we'll have um, links to her website, her Instagram account, everything on our, our website, just mm -hmm. ask And if you'll just take five seconds to uh, share us with a friend and whatever platform you listen to, if you'll rate us, it just helps people find us easier. Yeah. And please send topic suggestions to just ask your mom podcast at, at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time on just ask your mom. <laughs>